Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Pay-Per-View where I review the papers and big headlines over the week and place events and headlines in their true context in the weekly podcast. And talking of news, I'm going to start with this story about the BBC, one of the biggest purveyors of what's become known as fake news in the world. And they're now teaching kids how to identify fake news, watch BBC News. This is also in the Telegraph. BBC journalists to teach children how to identify fake news. The irony is not lost, is it? BBC journalists are to visit schools to teach children how to identify fake news. Well, stop watching the BBC, that's a start. The initiative has been designed to tackle false information that the corporation says threatens fact-based public debate and trust in journalism. Details of this scheme, which will involve up to a thousand schools, will be outlined in the BBC's annual plan on Wednesday. This is... Wednesday the 28th. It would include BBC journalists such as Hugh Edwards, Tina Dehaley, Nikki Fox, Kamal Akbed and Amal Rajan. Well, journalists, at least only in the sense that they're on television and they report news doesn't mean it's necessarily true. The details come after Ofcom, the communications regulator, warned that children were being increasingly exposed to fake news with nearly half 12 to 15 year olds finding it difficult to tell fact from fiction on social media. Well, research is a good start. The annual plan which sets out priorities for the year ahead will also focus on the BBC's role in society and the ways it could be used to unite politically estranged communities. The BBC's role in society is to be a mouthpiece and a PR vehicle for propaganda on behalf of the state, the establishment, the political class, royalty, and ultimately the intelligence arena and the elite. That's what the BBC's role in society is. When the country is increasingly being portrayed as fragmented and divided, the BBC will maximise opportunities to bring the country together, the report said. Not from what I can see. This is important at a time when the UK is seeking to redefine its relationship with the world. I don't think it's seeking to redefine its relationship with the world. What it's seeking to do along with America and Israel is take over and conflict with more and more countries en route to a, a massive global conflict. The report said this is important at a time when the UK is seeking to redefine its relationship with the world. The plan will outline ways in which the BBC plans to invest in new content with commissions that no other broadcaster would make. It also intends to improve iPlayer, admitting that it needs to provide a more personalised service for subscribers with more content and reinvent itself for a new generation. But the BBC said it faced continued financial challenges, highlighting the frozen licence fee and noting that investment in British content across the television industry was falling. And a lot of people are refusing to pay that licence fee now because of the bias and the propaganda communicated through the BBC. Another area of focus believed to be in the plan involves maximising the BBC's global reach with the BBC World Service undergoing its biggest expansion since the 1940s. A BBC source said the BBC can and will do more for Britain at an important time. Our aim will be to bring the public together while challenging fake news and false facts. The world is changing fast and Britain's media sector is still the envy of the world. We need to enhance and protect that against new global challenges. Well, it could start with itself. It was announced by the government in February that the annual TV licence fee will increase to £150.50 from £147 from April the 1st. No, that's not an April Fool's joke. They will be increasing it, even though it continues to communicate the biased propaganda on behalf of the establishment that it does. The idea that the BBC is a source of credible, trustworthy, 
research news is a joke. And now they're going to teach kids how to be journalists. They claim it's incredible. If they want to teach kids how to be journalists, teach them to take anything BBC says with a massive pinch of salt, to say the least. What I would suggest this is really about is targeting alternative sources of information, communicating incredible fact-checked, researched, true information, challenging and exposing the establishment and the elite's agenda. We're seeing a war on alternative information out from various sources. Google, Facebook, YouTube are all involved. We have had Theresa May talking about fake news before now and challenging extremism. And what they really mean by extremism is anything challenging them. Yes, there is a lot of rubbish circulating on social media and around the internet, but my solution would be instead of censoring it, and the establishment don't care about fake news. They want fake news because they can use that to justify censoring the real genuine alternative to the mainstream with real research and proper journalism, fact-checked information, credible information that is challenging the establishment. But instead of censoring information, how about if people take responsibility for their own perceptions and research the information they come across? Now that would be far more effective. No censorship necessary. And people say, well, I don't always have time to research information for myself. Well, okay, but don't believe anything then. Don't take anything as read. If you don't have the time to research it, don't assume it's true. It might be true, but don't take anything as read until you've checked it out. And that doesn't just go for anything from the BBC, that goes from any source of information, mainstream or alternative. This is in the mirror. Angry mum of four slams school where children are forced to walk silently in single file like robots. An angry mum has slammed a children's school where pupils are forced to walk in single file to their classes like robots. Mathanui Tregan from Coventry said Cardinal Wiseman Catholic School was turned into a prison. But of course, Catholic schools are a lot more authoritarian than regular schools, but we should not fall into the trap of thinking, oh, just because it's a Catholic school is what it's like this. All schools are prisons. The mum of four has two children at the school, a daughter in year 10 and an autistic son in year 7, where the youngest due to start in September, but says she is now unsure what to do after her eldest begged her to let her move. Her family accused the school of stopping children from being children after her own kids told her about the new school rules that Coventry Telegraph reports. She said the children were taken out of lessons to practice walking quietly in single file, and if anyone came out of line, they would get the whistle blown at them. It's a new school rule. They have to now walk in single file and in silence between lessons. And you get sent to isolation if you don't follow it. My daughter said it's like being in prison. What do prisoners have to do? Walk in single file. All the surveillance in school, on one level it's done to protect the children, but ultimately it's about preparing children for that world from the earliest possible age. So by the time they're adults, they didn't question it because they just see it as normal. And when you come into the world, you accept how things are is the way they should be or they're like that because that's the best way for them to be. This is why people older are well placed to point out that actually it wasn't always like this. The family claimed she was told by a teacher that the new rule was put into place for safety reasons. She said I asked the teacher and they said it was a safeguarding issue because they are people with extra needs and children are too boisterous so it's to make sure that all children get to lessons safely. Well the teacher might genuinely believe that's what it's about, I'm sure they do, but the truth is it's about this preparation. The quote goes on, but it's getting beyond a joke. It's like they're trying to stop the children from being children. Well, they are. 
I got a text message from my daughter saying the rules are absolutely ridiculous and that they can't walk around anywhere without being told off. She told me she wants to move schools and go somewhere else. She's only got one year left, but she said she didn't even care if she got held back a year. Well, schools in general are preparing children for this world of slavery and this world of conforming to authority and never questioning it. I know we're there already with many people, but they want to take it on to another level. My family claimed that children's break times had been reduced this year, which the school is denied. She also voiced concerns about children being told not to wear their coats in school. They can wear coats to and from the school, but not inside the building, so they have to carry them around, she said. They are expected to take them off in lessons, but I've heard from someone else that kids have even been told to remove their coats before they have even got inside the building. The school said pupils are only told to remove coats during lesson time. In Fanway, who also has a niece in year 11, claims a heavy workload of coursework has resulted in GCSE pupils being told to attend extra lessons during school holidays. She said year 11s have to stay until 6.30pm to do extra lessons. My niece still has to go into school on the Easter break. They don't seem to have any choice in the matter. Well, they didn't. The school denied that extra lessons are compulsory, but Mafanaway is concerned that the workload is too much for children. They're going to burn them out before they've even taken their exams. Cardinal Wiseman said the school is looking to mirror practices at other high-performing schools. Exactly as I said, this won't be the only school preparing children to be unquestioning slaves. And this won't be the only school that's a prison. But Mafanaway suggested that some of the new changes may make pupils rebel. She said everyone with half a brain knows if a child feels caged in, they will start to concentrate on fighting the rules and will lose their interest. Repressed people don't like to learn in the first place. It's like they are trying to turn students into robots. But they are. That's exactly the goal, ultimately. My son, who's autistic, is not going to cope well with walking everywhere in silence in single file. He's actively going to fight against it, and that's not his fault. It's kind of scary as a parent to see how upset my kids are having to leave the house every morning to go there. They wouldn't be the first kids to have a problem with going to school say that much. In January, it was revealed that due to financial difficulties, the school was planning a restructure which could result in some staff being made redundant. The Academy Secondary School has around 1,300 students and is part of the Roman Catholic Academy group, which runs a further seven Catholic primary schools in Coventry. The mum said she was a big fan of the school up until recently, but she's unimpressed with the new changes. She added, I know they are in financial difficulties, but they have cut classes and are stripping the school of everything that made Wiseman Wiseman. Tom Leverage, head teacher at Cardinal Wiseman Catholic School, said Cardinal Wiseman is improving standards within the school to ensure children are given the best possible education to support them in their futures. The popularity of the school has been confirmed in both the recent growth in numbers and every subscription in year seven. See, that's how they're judging the popularity. They're judging it by how many kids attend rather than what it's like for those kids when they attend. The school has introduced a new leadership team which is currently bringing in practices that will improve the life chances of the children and also rapidly improve behaviour standards. The team has also built strong partnership links with partner schools such as St Augustine's Catholic High School in Redditch which has recently been confirmed as the top performing school in the Midlands. Pupils are allowed to wear coats and scarves inside the buildings but are asked to take them off during lesson time, break time has not changed and has always been 20 minutes. As one of the largest schools in Coventry, the safety of our pupils is of the highest priority and the movement of 1,300 pupils across site throughout the day is extremely important. 
As such, children are required to walk in an orderly manner along designated routes and narrow corridors and stairwells to improve the movement around the school. The school sets the same extremely high standards for behaviour in the corridors as it has in the classrooms. The school does look to mirror current practices at some of the highest performing schools across the city as it looks to increase its aspirations for the benefit of all pupils. Our Year 11s have access to a wide range of after-school revision and support sessions including access to support with issues around managing the stress and workload of exams. We also run an extensive series of revision lessons during the school holidays that are staffed by experienced teaching staff. All of the extra sessions are optional, however we have had a tremendous response from both pupils and parents for the extra help and guidance these lessons have provided and have even had requests for more. I am always open to suggestions of how to improve the educational experiences of the children. Well, don't try to turn them into robots for a start. Of our school community and would always encourage parents to contact us for their feedback. The school also said some parents contacted it with thanks for the improved standards, particularly relating to the movement around the corridors. Just going back to the point about exams, I've got the best piece of advice about how to deal with the stress of exams. Don't take it seriously. There, problem solved. Exams for people who have a good memory, which is all of that what we call cleverness is in this context, are really confirming to the system authority that you've accepted its programming to a significant enough degree that you pass the exam. Revision is looking at something over and over and over again and eventually learning, in other words, memorizing what you've looked at. You don't know if it's true. And anyway, you don't have time to find out if it's true. You've got to revise. Revision is like rehearsal for an actor or an actor learning a script. People would say, no, because in school you learn things. Well, learning in the context they're talking about means learning information that broadens their understanding and is useful and worth learning. I understand the basics of reading, writing and maths are important, of course, but apart from that, what else that we're taught in school do we really need? I can understand it if you want to become a marine biologist or a historian, for example, then in that situation we need to learn certain parts of science and obviously learn a lot about history. But that's a choice you've made. You've decided you want to learn more about those subjects, but just because a few, and let's face it, it would be a few in comparison, want to learn that information so they can get good exam results in those lessons to take on to college and university. Doesn't mean every kid should have to sit there and be bored. And this comes back to what I said earlier about the education experience being exploration rather than education as we know it today and have for a long time. Unique to each child. That's how it should be, rather than this one-size-fits-all system. This machine preparing children for the bigger machine we call human society. I can understand why more and more parents are homeschooling their kids, because then there's more of a choice about what's learnt by the kids rather than having it imposed upon them. I can't think of one time since leaving school that I've needed to know the order of Henry VIII's wives, or the different names of marine life under the sea. For example, I mean algebra. How often do we ever need that in life? When school was first invented, school was more or less the only source of information apart from books. But now we've got the internet, we've got documentaries, we've got other sources of information beyond school. There's never been a greater access to information in human history. I've seen school described as an outdated concept, and I would agree with that. Very outdated, I think. But it's not done because it's the best for children. It's done to program perception and 
get children to be robots from the earliest possible age. To not question authority, to see authority as the authority on everything. I'm not saying we don't need to learn, far from it. I've learned enormous amounts about the world, how it's structured for a tiny few elite, and why it's run in the way that it is, and the tiny few elite's agenda for the world. Indeed, I'm writing a book about it at the moment. I've also learned a lot about deeper subjects like the nature of reality. I find reality fascinating. Reality, the universe, same thing. I love discovering more about reality. But the point is I've learned all that information in my own time, on my own terms. There was no pressure on me to learn that information. No exams, no grades, no schedule, no rules, no limits. I learned because I wanted to learn it and also because I realized it's important to learn it so I can communicate that information to other people, which is the whole point of it in the end. That's what pay-per-view is about, giving people a chance to hear information they don't get through the mainstream media or through education for that matter. But there's a difference between exploration and education as it's currently structured and that's my point. Schools are programming prisons preparing children for the bigger prison called human society. Keeping on the subject of school, I'm going to move on to this story now about homework. This is in the Telegraph. Head teacher suspended after parent backlash over school's controversial no homework policy. A head teacher has been suspended after a parent backlash over the school's controversial no homework policy. Catherine Huntley, principal of Philip Morant School and Colleges, has been suspended whilst an investigation takes place into parents' concerns and to establish the facts of the situation. Nideep Sharma, Chief Executive Officer of Thrive Partnership Academy Trust, which runs Philip Morant and the Colne Community School and College, has also been suspended. Two MPs, Will Quince for Colchester and Bernie Jenkins for Horwich and North Essex, wrote to the Education Secretary asking for an urgent review of the governance arrangements of the schools and the trust. In recent weeks and months, we have been contacted by parents raising concerns over bullying, support for their children with special educational needs, as well as the implementation of a no homework policy at Philip Morant, the letter said. When we have raised concerns with the schools and the trust, in at least one instance, we have found them to be evasive and unhelpful and even aggressive and obstructive. Meanwhile, parents are losing faith in the leadership of the schools and some have approached both the local education authority and the regional schools commissioner with their concerns. The MPs have asked the Department for Education to step in as a priority to ensure suitable leadership is in place to provide stability and support as exam season approaches. Philip Moran announced it was going to abolish homework in September 2016 with Ms Huckley saying she accepted the move would be controversial but was genuinely excited and was convinced students would benefit. Earlier this year, The Telegraph revealed how parents were in open revolt of the policy, complaining that it would lead to a generation of children flunking their exams. A spokesman for the Thrive Trust Board said, We confirm that Nardeep Sharma and Catherine Huckley of the Thrive Partnership Academy Trust have been suspended. Suspension is a neutral act and enables the Trust to carry out further work to establish the facts of the situation. There is no time frame for this as yet, but in the interest of all parties, we will seek to conclude as soon as possible. We have established interim arrangements for the leadership of our schools. This is what happens to teachers who try to run education and run classes as they think it should be done. They have to do it the way they're told or else. I talked last week about why I don't agree with homework. I don't agree with much of what happens in school in general either, come to that, but homework is just another means of continuing the programming of school when the kids are not in school. I explain education in more detail in episode 5 
if parents really knew what the education system is ultimately there to do, some of them would take their kids out of school and homeschool them and some would be glad about the no homework policy. You've got a situation where education, as it's called, is about getting kids to pass exams to get a good job rather than what it should be about if this world was run for the benefit of the people, including in this case a fundamentally different money system, which is about debt rather than exchange. People would have a lot more money and thus less time working if the money system was run for the benefit of the people. I've talked about money before on pay-per-view. In a world run for the benefit of the people, education would be about exploration. Exploration of each child on their merit and bringing out their own unique gifts and abilities, skills, talents, insights, ideas, etc. And asking them what they want to know and what they want to study. That's how it would be in a sane world, but because the world we live in is insane, mad with a method behind it, then we don't have exploration but a system of programming perception using the name education as a cover story. I'm not saying that teachers know this, but ultimately this is what it's about. If you're a tiny few elite with designs on global control, you have to manipulate perception because there's not enough of you, even with law enforcement, to do it physically. From perception comes everything else. And speaking of manipulating perception, that brings me on to the next story. Kids' lives outside of school are increasingly being taken over by homework and by the state, and that's what this next story. This is in the Daily Mail. A six-page form, parents wearing high-visibility jackets, road signs and insurance just so kids can play on the street. Incredible. They are the back streets where generations of sporting greats first honed their football skills, but an attempt in the northeast to return to the days when children could kick a ball around outside of fallen foul of health and safety zealots. The Play Street scheme was launched on Saturday in Newcastle-upon-Tyne in a bid to improve children's health and tackle obesity. The idea is to allow residents to close streets for up to three hours so children can play games without worrying about traffic, perhaps in the hope of following football idols from the region such as Alan Shearer, Bobby Charlton and Jackie Milburn. But horrified parents say city council bureaucrats have scuppered the scheme by imposing impossible conditions. Wait for this. Anyone wanting to hold a play session has to submit a six-page application form at least eight weeks in advance. All residents must be approached for their written agreement and sessions must be supervised by adults wearing high-visibility jackets. Marshals must be stationed at every point with road signs and cones provided by the council put up at specified locations. Organisers must also carry out a risk assessment and are advised to obtain public liability insurance of at least £5 million. And every road closure must be advertised in the local press and on the street. When I was a kid, when you wanted to go out and play, you just went out and played. You just did it. It was that simple. The Play Street scheme is intended for quiet residential areas rather than routes of public transport. It will run until October before being reviewed. On Newcastle's Granger State, where former England captain Shearer learnt to kick a ball, the locals were far from impressed. Retired builder Alan Wilson, 68, said it's a good idea but typical that they have created such a palaver. They're just kids playing in the street. Why does everyone in the neighbourhood have to be consulted? They've tied it up in red tape. Kids now are brilliant at football, but they play indoors in front of the telly. It, it's only their thumbs getting any exercise. Of course, that's a reference to games like FIFA and Pro Evo. Football video games. Mother of one, Sarah Manning, 21, said they come up with a good idea and then they mess it up by making life hard for the people who want to do it. Defending the scheme... Eileen Ainsley, council cabinet member for transport, said being able to play out in your street with your friends is a really important part of childhood, but often mums and dads are understandably concerned about road safety. It's not just about the children, adults can join in too. 
And resident Maragana Masic 61 said, I'm all in favour of kids playing outside, but I'd rather they didn't play in the streets. Our house and car got damaged so often I used to take the ball off them. Let them play on proper sports fields with high fences. Well, when I was a kid, my best mate lived next door to me and I would play out with him and his brother and other kids. And we'd go out playing football and other games and we'd walk the streets and we did it without a parent in sight. We didn't need any regulations and planning and liability insurance and road closures and risk assessments or parents or guardians or any adult there at all. You just went out and played. It was, that was what you did. And often we didn't know what we were going to play or where we were going until we were out. But that was that's how it should be. You just go with it. We were fun. We never got run over. We never got abducted. We never got attacked. We never got lost. This is how childhood used to be. And of course, for many kids, it still is. But um, less and less nowadays because parents are scared to let their kids roam free because of schemes like this being interfered with by the council. What's the point in having a scheme to tackle obesity when you have to submit a six-page application form at least eight weeks in advance? It's madness. And of course, I've talked before about how childhood is being stolen, especially episode five. The elite want to remove any last vestiges of true childhood and replace it with, in this case, you've got highly regulated play sessions and you've got increasing laws and interference from the authorities about what kids are allowed to do when they're outside. Ideally, they want kids inside on technology. And it's also part of getting kids used to the idea that the state controls your life. And that's normal. That's how it is when actually it's been manipulated into place. The idea is to get kids to move away from playing in the way they did in previous generations and to be more focused on technology. And that's the focus of the next article. This is in the Telegraph. The built-it-yourself computer bringing coding to kids. It may seem like the entire adult population is glued to their smartphone screens. Well, many of them are. But getting the next generation interested in the practical aspects of technology, in particular coding, has proven a roadblock to tackling the UK's skills gap. School leavers with skills in science, technology, engineering and maths are in short supply in just 2% of UK A-level students sit computing exams. Which is why coding for kids has emerged as an in-demand area for startups. The mantra that everyone can code has been embraced all the way up to tech giants like Apple. It is why Kano Computing, an East London startup, is hoping its products will become a key part of teaching computing. Kano develops a do-it-yourself computer for children aged 6 and up. The computer kit is designed to be almost like Lego, giving children the freedom to build it step by step. A distinctive orange keyboard and guidebook takes users through the important parts of a computer. Powered by a Raspberry Pi mini computer the size of a credit card, the Kano computer can be used to teach programming and code games. Founder Alex Client says Kano tries to push a creative way of learning that will appeal to younger children. Coding is often presented in a dry and pre-vocational way. It doesn't relate to the things kids are interested in, he said. Instead, Kano's coding is presented in games or practical exercises like building a voice assistant. Most of us just consume technology, says Klein. Kano lets you create with it code art, hack games like Minecraft and Pong, build apps, data visuals and animations. 
A mantra that coding is for all has been popularised in recent years. Apple has extended its Everyone Can Code programme to a handful of UK schools and universities. A host of initiatives to get kids keen on coding have exploded. Most recently, Nintendo launched its Nintendo Labo for its Switch, which included ways to hack and edit how games work, while UK startup Tech will save or secure £3 million in funding and is partnered with Disney for hackable toys. Kano itself has benefited from this interest, winning $28 million 19.8 million pounds in venture capital backing in November last year. Before these new ventures, Raspberry Pi was one of the first to bring cheap computers into secondary school classrooms. Launched in 2012, the computer was designed to allow coders to build programs and found popularity as a learning aid. More than 19 million have been distributed, but Kanan wants teaching coding to begin even earlier. Klein was an early fan of Raspberry Pi. When I moved to the UK, the Raspberry Pi had this community of coders around it. I became obsessed with it. That's the idea. The problem is, it is hard to understand without coding knowledge. I showed it to my nephew and tried to get him excited about it, but what he really wanted to know when he saw this naked computer brain was, can I build my own computer with this? Kano's pitch is that it's toys simple enough for children to develop an interest in the workings of computers while it can be taken forward to code far more complicated devices by older users. While Kano sells its products to families and schools, around 100 schools in the UK have Kano kits, much of its focus is on software. In the UK, 2,800 schools use this software. Kano also says it has started integrating the requirements of key stage 2 and 3 courses into its coding programs, making them easier for teachers to understand and use in classroom situations. Its coding system is built using Kano OS, which can be used to edit and manipulate games on the computer such as Pong, Snake or Minecraft. Children can edit rules and gain their first understanding of coding. The future of computer classes. But not everyone is convinced that teachers should be foisting coding on all students. A singular focus on learning to code can impede attention to the much more important skill of understanding how technology works. Robert Walter, Professor of Innovation at Northwest University of Rotten Quartz. Coding languages change often, so teaching code as if by rote, like Latin or Greek, is a redundant exercise. Others worry the UK's methods of teaching coding put off pupils. Benjamin Wall, a researcher at Lancaster University studying the UK's computing curriculum, says it is too much for most students and too basic for the rest. Wall says many of the coding toys available are fantastic and fun, but there is little research on effectiveness. Klein's own view is that the UK's general sciences curriculum is too rigid. We think that the government will and needs to make a real avowed push into looser requirements for testing in some disciplines. While Kano wants to solve these problems among younger children, improving coding and computer teaching into sixth form and onto university in the world of work presents its own challenges with the view of the UK's coding teaching is still a step behind the higher educational levels. Ben Wall, the rhetoric has made it worse. Learning to code is seen as the fast track to being the next Mark Zuckerberg, Wall says. Well, as I said in the last episode, I don't think for a second that Zuckerberg was the brains behind Facebook, especially not when Facebook has significant links to the intelligence agencies. The article goes on. No doubt kids will love playing with Kena, but only time will tell if startups like this can help begin to shift their clock in computer skills for the next generation. Well, this has nothing to do with teaching kids new skills. On the level the public interact with it, that's what it's about. People in the organisation will believe that's what it's about. The people at factory floor level. But ultimately, this is about pushing the transhumanism agenda, merging the human mind with artificial intelligence, which then becomes the human mind. The earlier you get kids addicted to technology, the more they'll be addicted for life and open to the idea of merging with technology. And talking of artificial intelligence, 
Here's another story in the Telegraph. Don't worry just about Facebook and Google. Take note of what China's doing with AI. Are you worried about the data gobbling habits of Facebook and its ancillaries? Private companies amassing data with less than scrupulous regard for our privacy? You bet. Well, I'm not worried about it, but it's worth pointing it out. In the wake of the Cambridge Analytica revelations, anyone behind the dwindling band of tech utopians will be more aware of how easy it is to offer up your data to a tech platform or third parties without understanding who could access it. But are we concerned or even aware enough about the speed of artificial intelligence or AI gathering by authoritarian governments potentially the far greater impact on the global data ecosystem and our own lives? Not remotely. Of the emerging interfaces of policy, regulation and digital innovation, this is the one that troubles me most. As I just said, people are getting, in many ways, distracted by Trump and by Russia and whatever other political story is taking their focus when this is the most important of all subjects to focus on. The article goes on. More so than the arrogance of Silicon Valley, because for all the many shortcomings of Facebook, Amazon, Google and Apple, they are being dragged into a public debate about their activities and forced to change some of their conduct or suffer the competitive consequences. For truly unaccountable power in data use and AI look to major state players for weak accountability. Foremost is China, where the speed of innovation and implementation of robotics and advanced machine learning is matched by tightening of control by the state. Last year, I interviewed some Chinese tech figures for The Economist and found their scale and ambition awesome. Didi Chuxing, having seen off Uber, is now working with manufacturers to introduce driverless cars to Chinese cities within a decade. Driverless cars are all about not being able to go where anywhere authority doesn't want you to go. And people who challenge and expose authority not being able to go anywhere. It's about control. And driverless cars will be controlled by artificial intelligence. WeChat, the micro-messaging service with nearly a billion users, is the means by which many Chinese customers pay for goods and exchange information, creating a vast info harvest on how its users live. Hangzhou, as the country's leading smart city, can track every resident, their social media activity, purchases and movements. Promethean in its ambition, many of these developments are also prospectively dystopian when it coincides with the system of state surveillance, combined with rejection of the rights of citizens to change their system of government. It's also dystopian for other reasons as well. A pilot scheme in Suining has awarded people points for good behaviour and deducted points for bad behaviour from traffic offences to politically inconvenient activity. Social ranking, in which data on everything from your credit score to your traffic fines is logged and coded to produce a score of your usefulness as a civilian, most benefits those who seek to exert control. These projects are now so closely intertwined with the interests of those who govern China that they appoint as representatives to the boards of major companies and new laws enshrine the ability of the state to grab data on wide-ranging grants. Well, it's not China that is behind it. China's somewhere where it's happening now, but they want that society everywhere. For all the grubbier opportunism of Western tech companies, they have a more cautious relationship with government. A free press means that abuses are revealed and titanic companies such as Facebook can crash into icebergs. Big data systems and democracies are most often designed for profit, meaning that users have the ultimate sanction of simply switching off their accounts. By contrast, we are only just starting to pay sufficient attention to the Gremlin's growing, threatening obsession with AI. The point of Vladimir Putin's boast about his new nuclear weapons cache was not just the return to Cold War competition and deadly missiles, but that AI might even help even up the scales with the US. Well, the US doesn't want to even up there. See, this is a story about technology, but they've got to mention Russia. 
Everything's Russia. The power and threat of AI lies in the fact that it is now so close to all our lives. Well, that's planned to be more true than the writer of this article will even begin to imagine. And impervious to state borders, as companies increasingly integrate search engines, speech recognition and automated customer service bots into their products and services. The West cannot opt out of the race against AI developers in undemocratic countries because it is a globalized business whose products can be transferred at low cost across borders. That makes it virtually impossible to guard against some data ending up in the wrong hands. Well, on one level, this rush for integration of AI into society is about money, but the reason the West cannot opt out of it is because it's not only a fundamental part of the elite's agenda, it's the end game of the elite's agenda, and they want everyone and everything to be connected to AI. See, this is a very important point to understand the world and society. The agenda trumps money every time. This is why people like Elon Musk sending up rockets with satellites to aim Wi-Fi at the planet has been questioned by people asking, how is he going to get his money back? He's not supposed to get his money back. That's not why it's being done. It's being done because for all human minds to be connected to AI, Wi-Fi, 5G Wi-Fi, has to be available everywhere. Society is agenda-driven, not money-driven. That's just factory floor level. Ultimately, it's agenda-driven. The article goes on. So far, our ability to regulate has lagged. The former Information Commissioner, Christopher Graham, reckons we are 10 years behind developments in data gathering, but that is changing as the public mood becomes more testing. In an open society, more pressure for transparency, a free flow of information, and noisy pressure groups create checks and balances that will help us better understand and deal with AI. Where these are lacking, beware the true being worth of data collection, largely unaccountable big states embracing big tech. Well, ultimately, it's known what AI is. And it's very different to what we're told, I would suggest strongly from information I've looked at. The idea is to unleash it, unrestrained. They don't want checks and balances on AI. It's not about holding it in check, it's about unleashing it. To run society and the human mind. What is called weak AI now, which is algorithmic AI, as I said earlier, algorithms that will be also run by full-blown self-aware AI or taken over by full-blown self-aware AI more accurately talking of programming perception we're going to move on now to the next story which takes it on to another level in fact it's not even about programming perception it's about an external force becoming perception and awareness and of course the people who've listened to earlier episodes they'll know i'm talking about transhumanism the agenda to merge humanity with technology and artificial intelligence which will become human perception and replace human perception this is in the washington post spacex gains official approval to launch high-speed satellite internet service SpaceX has received official permission from the u.s government to launch a fleet of satellites designed to beam high-speed internet signals down to earth the decision marks a major milestone for Chief Executive Elon Musk as he pursues a dream of putting 12,000 small satellites into low Earth orbit connecting rural and developing parts of the world to the internet. Well, I've talked before about what's called the cloud or the smart grid, which is the amalgamation of wireless information fields from smart and other technology. 
and the idea, as people like Ray Kurzweil talk about, the Google executive and co-founder of the Singularity University in Silicon Valley, California, the idea is that all human minds are connected to the cloud. Now, for that to happen, you need Wi-Fi everywhere, and that's what this satellite operation is about. And this Wi-Fi is 5G, and I've talked about 5G before on pay-per-view. And I've talked before about the abomination to health that 5G is. And this guy, Elon Musk, wants to bathe the entire planet in 5G. This will, not might, or could, or may, but will contribute to the depopulation agenda I've talked about before, which is one reason why it's being done, but not the only one. If people think smart meters are extreme, and they are, I've talked about them before on pay-per-view as well, they see nothing yet as far as 5G is concerned. And it's also being done because 5G is essential to transhumanism. The cloud or smart grid which artificial intelligence will control and anything connected to the internet as well as smart and other technological devices will be controlled by artificial intelligence. The cloud depends upon 5G for its existence. This is why they're rushing out 5G. The article goes on. In more connected areas, the technology could inject a new competitor into markets that have historically been dominated by one or two internet providers, potentially driving down prices, increasing speeds and improving service. This is the way it always goes. We're told about the benefits, we're never told about the real story behind it, because if we were, then people would reject it and not go for it. Regulators of the Federal Communications Commission issued the approval late Thursday, saying it was the first time the agency had approved a U.S. licensed satellite operation using the broadband technology. The order comes weeks after SpaceX launched demo satellites Tintin A and Tintin B into orbit to test the concept. SpaceX's first satellites are expected to come online next year. Their proposed satellite network would differ from current satellite data technology, which is slow and expensive. Under Musk's plan, SpaceX's satellite fleet would orbit much closer to Earth than traditional communication satellites that stay in geostationary orbit high above Earth. That means data will travel to and from the satellite much more quickly, increasing the speed and reliability of the connection. Although we still have much to do with this complex undertaking, said SpaceX President Queen Shotwell, this is an important step towards the company building a next-generation satellite network that can link the globe with a reliable and affordable broadband service, especially reaching those who are not yet connected. Why? Because they want all human minds to be connected to this cloud, which depends upon 5G for its existence. But some have criticised the plan as a potential safety hazard. FCC Commissioner Jessica Rosenworcel said Thursday that the satellites, while innovative, could raise the risk of increasing the amount of debris in space. Elon Musk talks about transhumanism and artificial intelligence being the end of human, which is absolutely right, but then says we need to merge with technology and artificial intelligence to save ourselves from robots and artificial intelligence when it gets to a point where it goes beyond human intelligence. Well, how about they stop building the robots and technology in the first place? That's never mentioned, however, because the agenda is for the end of human. I have massive reservations about Elon Musk, and it may be that he is the good cop to Ray Kurzweil's bad cop. Ray Kurzweil, who is out and out for transhumanism, and he will know the true nature of transhumanism. But it could be that Elon Musk is there to be the good cop, talking about the downsides of transhumanism while still pushing ahead with it, while Ray Kurzweil only talks about it in a positive way. Elon Musk has a company called Neuralink to connect the human brain to computers, a brain-computer interface. But that's a lesser version of what transhumanism is really about, which is nanotechnology, which is all around us from various sources, including food, cosmetics, and other sources, and chemtrails, 
Not condensation shells, exhaust from jet planes, but chemtrails, which instead of disappearing after a few seconds, stay in the sky and expand and include chemicals and metals. There's been a massive increase in Alzheimer's in recent years, and it's been suggested that aluminium could be a cause. Well, aluminium is in chemtrails. Barium, strontium, and other metals are in chemtrails, and so is nanotechnology. And when this smart grid, this cloud, is really at a point where it becomes active, that's when there will be the connection between nanotechnology, smart dust, neural dust, digital dust. A definition of smart technology is that it can communicate with other smart technology. And I remember reading an article about Berkeley University study, which has shown that smart dust can infiltrate the pathways of the brain. And Kurzweil talks about this. And the idea is that the nanotechnology, smart dust, will communicate with the smart grid, the cloud, and eventually artificial intelligence will do more and more and more of human thinking until human thought and perception is deleted forever and replaced by artificial intelligence awareness. This is what people like Ray Kurzweil are talking about. What we're looking at with transhumanism and transgenderism as well, which I've also talked about because the two fundamentally connect, is the end of human as we've known it up to this point. People talk about the end of the world. Well, I would say the end of human is really what we're looking at. The world will still be here, but humans won't. That's the true depth and scale of what we are facing as a human race. And all this focus on Trump, all this focus on surveillance and data gathering, as we had last week with the story about Facebook, is in a way a diversion, a diversion from the most fundamental, important subjects, which are the deletion of freedom of speech, because without that there can be no other freedom, and transhumanism and transgenderism. Those are the three most important subjects, and in many ways the political side of things is a diversion from all that. It's still important to know about, which is still be aware of it and research the truth of it and try to communicate that information. But the most fundamental important subjects, the deletion of freedom of speech, transhumanism and transgenderism, are what we need to focus on. Because if we don't, human will be no more. We're looking at the end of gender, the end of sexuality, the end of procreation, the end of parenting, the end of the human mind, and the end of human. Human thought and perception being deleted and replaced by artificial intelligence awareness. Anyone think that might be worth knowing about? I think so. Anyone think that might be more important than EastEnders or Coronation Street or clubbing or going down the pub or watching the football or watching Keith Lemon or watching Simon Cowell or X Factor or reading celebrity gossip. Anyone think it might be more important than that? If they don't, they won't be around much longer as anything that you would call human. That's the choice. 
I've got a chapter towards the end of the book I'm writing all about this and I've called it Endgame. The book's called The Global Agenda Playbook, How a Tiny Few Control the World and to What End. And the chapter's called Endgame. And I've called it Endgame because it's the endgame of the agenda for the elite, but it's also the end of humanity, if we allow it to be. That's the choice. And we don't have long to make it either. That's why peer review exists, to point out the bigger picture of society, changing events in the direction of society, and provide the context and connections to see the full picture rather than a part of it in isolation. Change of subject now, Zionism. This is in the independent. Thousands of Jeremy Corbyn supporters endorsed letters saying Jewish organised anti-Semitism protests was the work of a very powerful special interest group. More than 2,000 supporters of Jeremy Corbyn have backed an open letter suggesting a Jewish organised protest against anti-Semitism in the Labour Party was the work of a very powerful special interest group. The open letter posted to Mr Corbyn claimed the organisers of Monday's demonstration used their immense strength to employ the full might of the BBC in order to launch an onslaught against the Labour leader. Well, I don't know what the BBC's involvement, if any, in this was or was not, but when they talk about special interest groups, what they're talking about is Zionist organisations who go around claiming anti-Semitism and therefore racism from people they want to silence because those people are saying things they don't want said, like pointing out the genocide of the Palestinians by the Israeli regime. The event was organised by Jewish community groups, the Board of Deputies and the Jewish Leadership Council. The letter claims the organisers had sought to use their history and influence to dictate who the rest of us can vote for or how we vote. It comes as Mr Corbyn battles to respond to allegations he has failed to adequately address anti-Semitism among his supporters. The letter was posted on the We Support Jeremy Corbyn Facebook group and was liked by more than 2,000 of the group's followers. Almost a 1,000 comments had asked for their names to be added to the text. Coming the day after Monday's protest, it states yesterday we witnessed the full onslaught of a very powerful special interest group mobilising its apparent immense strength against you. It is clear this group can employ the full might of the BBC to make sure its voice is heard very loudly and clearly. It is a shame not every special interest group can get the same coverage. It adds, but, and it's a very big but, we live in a democracy, a one member, one vote democracy in no special interest group, regardless of their history or influence, can be allowed to dictate who the rest of us can vote for or how we vote. I'll just read out the full letter here. Dear Jeremy, I cannot begin to imagine how you must be feeling this morning. I feel battered, bruised and down, you're hopeless and helpless. God knows how you feel. Yesterday we witnessed the full onslaught of a very powerful special interest group mobilising its apparent immense strength against you. It is clear this group can employ the full might of the BBC to make sure its voice is heard very loudly and clearly. It is a shame not every special interest group can get the same coverage. But, and it is a very big but, we live in a democracy, a one member, one vote democracy, no special interest group regardless of their history or influence can be allowed to dictate who the rest of us can vote for, how we vote. Everyone can use their vote as they wish, and if people feel you do not represent them, they have every right not to vote for you. I am writing this letter to say that I support you and I trust you more than I would trust any politician to do the right thing in terms of racism, anti-Semitism, and any hate-mongering from anyone against anyone. I hope that you can stay strong and carry on representing all of us, the many, as you have been doing. Well, I would question that. We know that any politician who stands for the many and not the few will have very many powerful enemies and it is expecting an awful lot of a person to put up with the pressures that are put on you. But thank you, thank you for your inspiration and steadfastness and be sure you still have my support. 
The letter was posted by a user named Francis Nags, who said they were a Labour Party member in the Staffordshire Moorlands constituency. The Independent has approached the leader's office for a comment. The news came as an ally of Mr Corbyn was forced to resign as chair of a key Labour disciplinary panel after a leaked email revealed that she had argued that council candidate who claimed the Holocaust was a hoax should not be suspended for the party. Well, how about debating with anyone who says that and finding out why they believe what they believe? They might learn something. Does anyone ever think about that? They might learn something? No, stop them. Speaking is hate speech. Or maybe it's not hate speech, maybe it's ignorance. But you'll only know that by actually talking to them and finding out. But what these Zionist groups are doing is equating comments like the claim that the Holocaust was a hoax. And I'm not saying it was, but they're equating that with hate speech. Or maybe it's just ignorance. Why does everything anyone says that involves race have to be hate speech? Why? Well, in this case, to use the claim of hate speech to silence legitimate questioning and criticism and challenge of Zionism and the Israeli regime. And when you play it out to society in general, anything that challenges and exposes authority, which is where political correctness comes in, as I've said before. It's not just Zionist organisations that are created to be Zionist organisations that are behind this drive for censorship. There's others like Facebook. I was banned from Facebook once for posting about this subject, only for around 20 minutes, half an hour. Facebook is behind this censorship on behalf of Zionism because Facebook's not run by Zuckerberg. I said last week Facebook is fundamentally connected, like Silicon Valley in general, to the intelligence arena. YouTube is closing channels of people challenging authority and challenging the establishment and challenging anything the elite don't want people to know about. YouTube, of course, is owned by Google which is using algorithms to manipulate search engine results. The article goes on. Labour sources said Mr Corbyn had asked Christine Shawcroft to step down as chair of the disputes panel, which investigates allegations of anti-Semitism and other offences after her email was leaked to the Times. Earlier on Thursday, the leaders of the Board of Deputies and Jewish Leadership Council refused Mr Corbyn's request for an urgent meeting unless he agrees to meet a number of conditions, including appointing an independent ombudsman and publicly condemning abusive Labour MPs who attended Monday's protest. In an attempt to quell rising anger about anti-Semitism in Labour, Mr Corbyn wrote to the two groups on Monday admitting that anti-Semitic attitudes have surfaced more often in our ranks in recent years and accepting that the party has been too slow in processing some of the cases that have emerged. Well, are they all anti-Semitic or are they asking genuine questions and making genuine, legitimate points? Requesting an urgent meeting to discuss the issue, we said, I recognise that anti-Semitism has surfaced within the Labour Party and has too often been dismissed as simply a matter of a few bad apples. This has caused pain and hurt to Jewish members of our party and to the wider Jewish community in Britain. Has it or has it caught the attention of Zionist groups? I am sincerely sorry for the pain which has been caused and pledged to redouble my efforts to bring this anxiety to an end. However, in a reply sent on Wednesday, Board of Deputies President Jonathan Arkush and Jewish Leadership Council Chair Jonathan Goldstein wrote, For whatever reasons, you have not until now seemed to grasp how strongly British Jews feel about the situation. Your letter was a welcome change in this regard, but only if it kickstarts strong action and leadership against the problem. Another story now that goes on from this. Jeremy Corbyn apologises for pain and hurt caused by anti-Semitism in Labour's Jewish Leaders Plan demonstration. This was actually published on Sunday the 25th of March, but it's of course relevant to the story I've just read. Jeremy Corbyn has apologised for any pain and hurt caused by anti-Semitism when in pockets of the Labour Party's Jewish leaders issued a statement saying enough is enough. The Labour leader's statement came as community leaders from the Jewish Board of Deputies and the Jewish Leadership Council planned to demonstrate at Parliament Square on Monday before they delivered a letter to a meeting of the Parliamentary Labour Party. 
Mr Corbyn faces pressure from MPs within his party to address concerns for his comments in 2012 on a Facebook post in which he appeared to show his opposition to their removal of an anti-Semitic mural. The mural. There's nothing anti-Semitic about it at all. Labour MP Angela Smith has demanded Mr Corbyn attend Monday's PLP meeting, but the Independent understands the Labour leader will not be there. On Sunday evening, the Labour leader issued a statement which read, Labour is an anti-racist party and I utterly condemn anti-Semitism, which is why, as leader of the Labour Party, I want to be clear that I will not tolerate any form of anti-Semitism that exists in and around our movement. We recognise that anti-Semitism has occurred in pockets within the Labour Party causing pain and hurt by Jewish community and the Labour Party and the rest of the country. I am sincerely sorry for the pain which has been caused. Our party has deep roots in the Jewish community and is actively engaged with Jewish organisations across the country. Are they Jewish organisations or are they Zionist organisations? We are campaigning to increase support and confidence in Labour among Jewish people in the UK. Speaking on the BBC's Andrew Marshall, Mr Watson defended Mr Corbyn but added, I am very, very sorry that people feel hurt by this and that is why I think it is right that Jeremy has expressed regret for it. Painted in London's East End in 2012 by a graffiti artist known as Mere One, the mural depicted a group of businessmen and bankers playing a Monopoly-style board game balanced on the backs of people. Well, that's not only not anti-Semitic, it's also true. Bankers are playing with the lives of people. It was painted on the end wall of a private property but was removed by local authorities after complaints from residents. In his 2012 post responding to its imminent destruction, Mr Corbyn said, Why? You are in good company. Rockefeller destroyed Diego Vieira's mural because it includes a picture of Lenin. After Labour MP Luciana Berger demanded an explanation, Mr Corbyn said in the statement on Friday, I sincerely regret that I did not look more closely at the image I was commenting on, the contents of which are deeply disturbing and anti-Semitic. It's not at all. I am opposed to the production of anti-Semitic material of any kind, and the defence of free speech cannot be used as a justification for the promotion of anti-Semitism in any form. Speaking on Sunday with Mel Patterson of Sky News, Labour's Shadow Transport Secretary Andrew MacDonald said that Mr Corbyn hasn't got an anti-Semitic bone in his body, adding his entire history is about campaigning for human rights to oppose discrimination. He said, I think we've had a very frank and thorough look at the issues of anti-Semitism and we've reaffirmed our absolute abhorrence of that issue in all of its manifestations. I think we're dealing with the issues in the correct way and I know that this issue is continually in the headlines and I think we've got to take it head on. Referring to the mural, Mr MacDonald added he's accepted that he didn't look at it properly. It is anti-Semitic and it should be removed. He couldn't be clearer about it. A mere one has said, in October 2012, I travelled to London to paint a mural that has once again become the centre of controversy and condemnation. I had just gone through the cipher of Occupy LA 2011 all the way to its violent end. The Occupy movement was a movement protesting against the actions of the banking system. I had just gone through the cipher of Occupy LA 2011 all the way to its violent end the night the LAPD rolled through to dismantle the protest. That's what happened in New York as well. Law enforcement tried to break up protests there. Over the course of the issue on movement, my experience has helped to crystallise my post-9-11 thinking on global politics and the economic slave system, deepening my knowledge of fractional reserve lending and other banking schemes that led to the collapse of the markets in 2008. Talks about fractional reserve lending and the money system. Episode 5. These facts began to find design in my mind and while on the flight to London I sketched out my plans for a mural inspired by these recent real world events. Art has always been my tool of communication to describe reality as I'm living it, delving into politics, science and philosophy. Given the times we are living in today, rich getting richer, poor getting poorer, I felt the need to speak out about these crimes against humanity. So that's why he did it and that's what it represents. Nothing anti-Semitic at all. This is a story about 
Zionism ultimately, not anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism actually means anti-Arab because Semitism relates to language groups, the vast majority of which are Arabic. There's two types of Zionism. There's the type most Zionists will follow. And then there's revisionist Zionism, which is about coordinated global political influence. And it's that type which is the reason why this story exists in the first place. Zionism is a political philosophy, not a race. What kind of society do we live in when you can't question or criticize a political philosophy? You don't have to be Jewish to be a Zionist because it's not about race. This is what they do. They try to equate criticism of Zionism with criticism Jewish people. And that's not the way it works because Zionism is not about Jewish people. It's a political philosophy. At its core, a secret society. Within the web of secret societies and elite organizations that interface between the elite and the public and more exclusive secret societies and elite manipulation. Zionism is not about Jewish people because it's not about race. You just have to agree to its claim to a Jewish homeland of Palestine to be a Zionist. And the idea that there should be a Jewish homeland of Palestine is because God demands it, because it says it should happen in a Bible written by who knows who, who knows when and who knows what circumstances. The House of Rothschild, which is ultimately behind Zionism and owns Israel. Israel is the fiefdom of the Rothschilds. The House of Rothschild and revisionist Zionism doesn't give a shit about Jewish people. It uses Jewish people for its own political ends and as a cover to brand people racist and anti-Semitic when they're asking legitimate questions of Israel and Zionism. In America, for example, the number of Jewish people is tiny compared with the population overall, and only some of them will be Zionists. Most of them will not have any idea about revisionist Zionism or follow it, and its role in global society and some Jewish people actually protest and have created organizations to protest against revisionist Zionism. Then you look at the ratio of revisionist Zionists in positions of power, and it speaks for itself. It can be the same situation in this country and other countries as well. Revisionist Zionism came about from Zhev Jabotinsky, who believed in the right for a Jewish state in Palestine, and that only military force would achieve this. Jabotinsky believed in a greater Israel. The current Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu's father, Benjamin Netanyahu, was Jabotinsky's personal assistant. It's not about race, it's about a political philosophy and secret society and a greater Israel. What we've seen over the decades since the late 1940s is constant erosion of Palestinian land in seek of a greater Israel. And where did this hate crime legislation come from? The ADL, Anti-Defamation League, could go around defaming people ironically. The ADL is a revisionist Zionism organization and it did this as the British public were learning of the horrors of the Israeli regime against Palestinians in 2014. Criticism of Israel is seeking to be censored completely by these organizations working on behalf of the House of Rothschild, not just because they don't want people to criticize Israel's treatment of Palestinians, but because they also don't want people to point out Zionism's massive influence in political affairs and foreign policy, not least destabilizing the Middle East, which leads to the migration crisis we've seen unfold, and does anyone really believe that when Blair and Bush and Obama and Cameron and May were bombing the living shit out of Afghanistan and Iraq and Yemen, and when the West was behind the invasions of Syria and Libya, that they didn't know what the outcome would be, that thousands of people would have to flee as refugees into places like Britain, America and Germany, 
Of course they did, but that's part of the plan. If you want to bring in a world government dictatorship, you have to break down a sense of culture and nationhood, to break down that resistance to external control of the indigenous population's country. And I've talked about this before in episode 7 or 8. Economic implications arise from this as well, and this plays into the Hunger Games Society, which I've talked about before. For what I mean by that, see episode 4. As well as divide and rule which is perfect for manipulation because you can then use that division for your own ends. Also, the bombing and invasions by the West, each of them on a manufactured pretext, are about ticking off a pre-planned list of countries in the Middle and Near East and North Africa, leading to a massive global conflict involving Russia and China. This is why we're seeing the demonization of Russia now, and why American military bases are bordering China. I talk about this agenda in more detail in episode 7, which will be used to justify an unelected world government, take the structure of the EU and apply it globally. The world government would dictate to the unions, which would then dictate to the nations broken up into regions. This is why they want to make vast areas of land uninhabitable and designated not for use to make it easier to control. And this is also why they want to cull the global population to a massive extent, because they want to herd people into smart cities controlled by artificial intelligence. Now we're into the transhumanism agenda. And if you're going to do that, then what are you going to do with everybody? That's where the depopulation agenda comes in, and they also plan a world army officially to stop a massive conflict ever happening again, but in truth, impose the will of the world government on any nation or group who don't want to surrender their lives to the orders of the world government. This is the context and connections you don't get in the mainstream media. And there's, there's a new definition created in 2016 of anti-Semitism by the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, of course, a Zionist organization, based in Berlin in Germany. Aspects of the new definition. Contemporary examples of anti-Semitism in public life, the media, schools, the workplace and in the religious sphere could take into account the overall context include but are not limited to. Include but are not limited to because they want to have as wide a possible interpretation as they can. So they can use that to silence as many people in as many situations as they can if they feel the need to include but are not limited to calling for, aiding or justifying the killing or harming of Jews in the name of a radical ideology or an extremist view of religion. But there's nothing wrong with killing or harming Palestinians or destroying Palestinian land in the name of a radical ideology or an extremist view of religion. Making mendacious, dehumanizing, demonizing or stereotypical allegations about Jews as such or the power of Jews as collective such as, especially but not exclusively, the myth about a world Jewish conspiracy or of Jews controlling the media, economy, government or other societal institutions. What that means is pointing out, as I said just now, the immense influence revisionist Zionism has globally, accusing Jews of, as a people of being responsible for real or imagined wrongdoing committed by a single Jewish person or group, or even for acts committed by non-Jews. What about the destruction of Palestinian land and the genocide of Palestinians in the name of Zionism. Denying the facts, scope, mechanisms, e.g. gas chambers or intentionality of the genocide of the Jewish people at the hands of National Socialist Germany and its supporters and accomplices during World War II and the Holocaust. Well, I've just said what I think about people questioning the Holocaust. If it's being done offensively and racially motivated, then of course that should be dealt with. But asking legitimate questions, I think it's better to have a debate with someone rather than punishing them and denying them a platform to speak. 
denying the Jewish people their right to self-determination, e.g. by claiming that the existence of a state of Israel is a racist endeavor. Well, I assume that means the greater Israel that Jabotinsky wanted, the destruction of Palestinian land and the genocide of the Palestinian people in search of a greater Israel. Well, that is racist. How else could you describe it? Israel is an apartheid society. Applying double standards by requiring of it a behavior not expected or demanded of any other democratic nation. Well, what about expecting or asking of it behavior that is required of a democratic nation? That would be a start, wouldn't it? Drawing comparisons of contemporary Israeli policy to that of the Nazis. Well, when you look at places like Gaza, which is an incredibly tiny area of land, and you look at the genocide the Palestinians are subjected to on a regular basis. How else can you describe that? But a concentration camp. That's what Gaza is. A tiny concentration of people being subjected to regular genocide in the name of a political philosophy called Zionism, or Visionist Zionism to be more accurate. Holding Jews collectively responsible for the actions of the State of Israel. Well. Holding revisionist Zionists collectively responsible for the actions of the state of Israel is more accurate, but they're using this definition to allow them to stop people, or to attempt to stop people doing that, by branding them racist and anti-Semitic, and using that to stop them having platforms to speak. Revisionist Zionism is a secret society operating the agenda of the Rothschilds, ultimately, which are the family at the top of the elite pyramid of liberal manipulation. This is why Israel is allowed to get away with the genocide of the Palestinians. This is why the British and American, German, Australian, French, etc. administrations never criticize Israel. They don't want people to see the extent of Israel's and Zionism's influence globally because if people find that out, then the next question is who's really behind it? The House of Rothschild. This is what I've seen referred to as defending the first domino. You've got a line of dominoes lined up. You hit one down. And if they're lined up properly, then the others will go down. So if people find out revisionist Zionism's influence globally in political affairs, then that could lead to other dominoes falling and eventually the House of Rothschild being highlighted. And they really don't want that. Not just because they're behind it all, but because it will expose the fact that there is a coordination between countries and apparently separate government policies worldwide. And that could cause some even bigger dominoes to fall. So criticism of Israel has to be nipped in the bud at source to stop that from happening. And that's what this whole situation with Jeremy Corbyn is really all about. So, hope you've found this informative. I look forward to doing it next week as usual. And continuing to provide the bigger picture of this mad world that we live in to show the method of the madness so until then goodbye